Welcome to the Hedgemaker Broadcast. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied to the nation of Israel many long years ago. Ye have not gone up into the gaps, neither made up the hedge for the house of Israel to stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. He also said that the Lord sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Hedgemaker Baptist Ministries, located in beautiful Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, is attempting to stand in the gap and make up the hedge in these days of spiritual compromise and theological apostasy. Our biblical and historical Christian heritage challenges us to fill in the gaps left by those who have moved away from their biblical foundation. Listen now as we build up the wall and make up the hedge through sound preaching from God's Holy Word. Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. What we're going to read about are some of the trials that Jesus went through. I believe you put the Gospels together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you end up with three religious trials and three political trials, all taking place in the middle of the night. We're reading just about few, not all of them here in this section. Mark chapter 14, verse number 53, And they led Jesus away to the high priest. They had captured him, of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. And Peter followed him afar off, even unto the palace of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. And the chief priests and all the council sought for witness against Jesus to put him to death and found none. For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain and bear false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. Now that's a little different take on the way that Jesus actually said that, right? But neither did their witnesses agree together. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. And again the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes and said, What need we any further witnesses? Ye have heard the blasphemy. What think ye? And they all condemned him to be guilty of death And some began to spit on him, and to cover his face, and to buffet him, and to say unto him, Prophesy! And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. Mark's usually the shortest of the gospel writers giving details about these events, and so he's moved these into a little concise statement. We're going to look at, much like we did the last uh, week, uh, when we looked at the, the previous paragraph, at some of the characters, Christ, of course, is the character we want to emulate. And uh, he is giving us a wonderful example here of what to do in the face of trials. Interpreted this, in, entitled this sermon, The Servant and the Trials of Life. Uh, kind of as a follow-up from this morning's message, the dark spots in life, the trials of life are there. What do you do in the midst of the trials of life? We need to develop godly Christian character. There will be... Different groups of people. Peter will be one of them. We'll pick on Peter next week as we watch him deny the Lord. But he's here in this passage as well. 
and the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus, of course, is led before the high priest, what we call the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin was the official ruling body, the high court of the Jews, and they're doing things that are not right. All of this is taking place in the middle of the night, and so there's some illegal activity. They're violating their own laws. They hastily assembled a court at night. A night court was illegal. All the criminals had to be tried in the daytime. They were meeting in Caiaphas' palaces, one of his one of the places where the religious trials took place. In other words, in Caiaphas' home, not in an official courtroom or court place. This too was illegal. All cases were to be tried in court. And then they were also trying Christ during Passover week. I don't know that there was a specific law, or Old Testament law anyway, that was against that, but no cases were to be tried during Passover week. And yet they were doing this during Passover week. And then they're really not meeting to actually try Christ. What they're doing is secretly devising charges to condemn him to death. So the whole purpose of it was not right. Notice the text that says, In verse 53, they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. The assembling there is one of the normal words for a gathering together, like people flocking together, but in this case, it seems to be that there's a group of people, folks flock together to get uh, some things done. That's the impression I'm getting here. Men flocking together, often to do evil. That's human nature. You can see that in a host of historical things throughout history. Men also flock together to oppose Christ. They'll even do it in church. If you've been in church long enough and you've seen church fights, people flock together. Somebody gets riled about something, they call, get on the telephone or Facebook or whatever, and they rile everybody else up and get folks stirred up. Folks don't want to do this by themselves. They want to flock together. That's the impression I get here. These men were assembled all together for these common purposes of devising charges against Christ to condemn him to death. It is easier to do evil or to oppose Christ in a group than when alone. Normally, when you get someone alone, you can deal with them. If you've ever done any kind of witnessing to a crowd, a crowd that would be antagonistic toward the gospel, that crowd can heckle you or group together, band together. One person says something, then another person says something. But if you can divide them up and get them into smaller groups or individually, you can then begin to deal with them. Because it's much easier to do evil or to oppose Christ in a group. Isn't that what the book of Proverbs is all about? Wisdom stands at the head of the street crying out to the simple ones. The opposite of wisdom, foolishness, is going to group and band people together to do foolish things. And so we have things happening in groups, sometimes in gangs or other groups that create or do evil. It's hard to be a separatist. But the Bible tells us to do that. I mentioned that this morning. That The verse that that is is used there is 2 Corinthians 6, verses 17 and 18. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. 
Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. When you see a group that is doing things opposite of what they should be doing, it is hard to come out from among them and be separate. But that's what we're called upon to do. Either to leave that group or to oppose that group when they're doing things evil. It is much easier to just not say anything, go along with the crowd, and even join the crowd. We talk about getting on the bandwagon. A crowd draws the crowd, whether it's for good or evil. So it's easier to do evil and oppose Christ in a group than when alone. And also we discover about the heart. The heart's deceitful above all things. A heart that wishes to do evil will twist the rules. We know what the rules say. Ever talk to somebody and say, well, you know, the Bible says, I know, I know, but... And they twist the rules. If a man is looking to do trouble, he will rationalize the truth, even though he knows the truth, and twist it around to make it say something else. The little epistle of 3 John, verse 11, says, Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. So, we see this group of the officials. I don't know what you want to call them. They're confused. They've got their own agenda. But then we see Peter. In verse 54, Peter followed him before all. Now, Mark doesn't tell us in the previous paragraph that Peter was the one that cut off the high priest's servant's ear. The other Gospels tell us that. So, we've already seen Peter, and Peter is told by the Lord to put up his sword. Don't do that. That's not the way we're going to fight this battle. And so, since Peter couldn't stand up with his sword, he had to flee. We read in the previous paragraph that the men that were with the chief priests and scribes tried to get other people. There was a young man there. The Bible doesn't tell us who it was. We suggested that it was Mark. They're doing that with the other disciples as well. If you're with him, we're going to capture you too. And so they all forsook him and fled. Peter forsook him and fled. Now we find Peter following him afar off. And so, let's call Peter confused, curious, yet courageous. Confused, curious, and yet courageous. He had attempted to defend Christ, but uh, Jesus stopped him and forbade him to come to his aid. Jesus was there in, in Peter's eyes, giving in to the injustice. All of these men coming and arresting him in the middle of the night, uh, the injustice, all of the indecencies of the mob... And so Peter couldn't understand, why doesn't Jesus do something here? Why doesn't he tell his disciples? We don't know if another one of them had a sword or not. Why doesn't he tell them to fight, to stand up, to at least resist this arrest or do something? But he loved the Lord. We can't really deny that Peter didn't love the Lord. He loved the Lord. And so he's following him. What's going to happen? Maybe... We're just thinking here what, what may have gone through Peter's head. Maybe Peter was thinking, well, no, he didn't resist there in the garden, but Peter had to flee for his life. So he followed the far off. i got to find out what's going to happen. And so we're going to follow Peter, following the Lord here, afar off. I think he had a love for the Lord, even though he's going to deny him in the next paragraph, he still loves the Lord. And so his love for Christ stopped him from running completely away. He turned around, came back. We don't read about any of the other disciples doing that, uh, that I'm aware of anyway. But he stayed at a safe distance. 
Okay, followed him afar off. We make much of that in our preaching that we sometimes have Christians who follow the Lord, but they follow him afar off. And we ought to get right up there in the close to the Lord. So I think it took enormous character or courage for Peter to enter the courtyard of Caiaphas' palace. Peter's risking his life. If the Lord is going to be crucified, I don't know if Peter knew that at this particular point, but they arrested him, of course, and he would be risking his life by being there. But he had to see what happened to the Lord. So he probably had hope above hope that uh, Christ would be doing something to smash this crowd and to quell all of this problem. Let's think about our own love for the Lord. How deep is our love for Christ? Is it so great that we would risk our lives to follow Christ? And there's a positive thing about Peter. We'll look at the negative thing next week. But too often our love is so weak that we'll not even risk our lives or risk ridicule. We don't even like ridicule, let alone being a martyr for Christ or embarrassment. We don't want to say anything because we're afraid to be embarrassed about the things of the Lord. So Peter loves him. And his love caused him to be courageous. I don't think courage is something that's natural to us. I think it comes to us because of the truth. We need to respond because of the truth and because of our love for the Lord. And uh, courage needs to be rooted in our love for Christ and love for the truth. When Paul wrote to Timothy, Timothy was, we call him Timid Timothy. He said to Timothy, wherefore I put you in remembrance, this is 2 Timothy 1, verses 6 and 7, that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So that courage comes from the love that we have for Christ. And we love him because he first loved us. So it's not something that we nor necessarily just muster up in ourselves, but we love him because he first loved us. Now, let's go back to these religionists, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders. They are disturbed about what is going on. So we're seeing their character here. They sought some kind of testimony against Christ. So what they're going to do, and I don't know how they do this in the middle of the night, but verse 55 says, The chief priests and all the council sought for a witness against Jesus to put him to death and found none. For many bear false witness against him, but their witness agreed not together. And there arose certain, and bear false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But neither so did their witnesses agree together. So we get the impression, I think it's a proper impression of what is actually happening here. These religionists are seeking to find fault with Christ. They've been trying to do that throughout his ministry. Uh, Asking questions, raising questions to try to trip him in his own words. And they were never successful at doing that. Jesus always came back with a proper answer. So they're seeking now some false witnesses. We have people that will do that today. When somebody gets it in their crawl to go against the truth and to pick on a Christian like they did with Daniel. Daniel was praying to his God three times a day and so they had uh, old Nebuchadnezzar make a decree not to do that. They make a, a law that he couldn't pray to any God but the God of the nation. 
And Daniel prayed to God anyhow. That's what folks do. That's a false witness, in a sense. And bring a false accusation against him. So the witnesses were false. I think they're mentioned as such uh, two or three times in this passage. There in verse number 56, many bear false witness. And then in 57, at least twice there, they're called false witnesses. Of course, the idea in a courtroom is that you are to be a true witness. They're supposed to be operating by Roman law. I don't know the history of all of that, but I know that our laws here in America, many democratic nations, are built on old Roman laws. And so we get into the courtroom and we declare that we're going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I don't know if the Roman law had something along that line or not, but that was the idea. However, they couldn't find any fault in Jesus, so they had to bring false witnesses. That is something that is done when accusations are brought against Christians. I don't know, we're living in a day and age, I scratch my head when I look at situations, and you don't know what to believe. You're in the courtroom. I've never had to serve on a jury. I cringe about doing that, because people sit in that witness stand, and they raise their hand, or whatever they do, to swear to tell the truth, and the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and they sit there and tell lies. I hope I never have to sit on a, a jury to determine if that man's tell that woman, that man, or telling the truth or not. How do I know? They can tell the truth with a smile on their face. I'd have to do some awful lot of praying to get the Lord's discernment to know whether or not that person is telling the truth or not. I've never had to do that. But false witnesses. False witnesses, well, I'm not I'm gonna tell you a lie right now. <laughs> they don't do that. They're telling you to tell them the truth when they're telling you a lie. So they're false witnesses. The truth is the truth. Right? The truth speaks for itself. And another thing we find out about these witnesses, they could not agree. What the Bible says, a thing is to be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Those two or three witnesses are to agree. It's not a matter of, okay, we have one witness here, one says this, one says that, and maybe a third one says another thing, a third thing even, and, okay, we'll pick one of them. No, they must agree in order for the accusation to stick. In this case, these witnesses that were called for, those false witnesses, could not agree. One said one thing, another said another thing. And it says so here, in our text, they bear false witness, certain ones. Verse 56, but their witness agreed not together. And again in verse number 59, but neither did their witnesses agree together. They were false witnesses. They weren't telling the truth. And what they said, they didn't agree on their lies. They didn't agree. Now, had they agreed on their lies, would that make them true? No. What if all three witnesses or more said the same exact thing. Would that have made it true? No, that would not have made it true. But in the life of Christ here, these were false witnesses and they were non-agreeing witnesses. Alright? And so, they went ahead anyway. Strange. Now, one of the things they did say there in verse number 58, they said that he said, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. Is that what he said? No. He just said, 
destroy this temple. You destroy the temple and I will raise it up. What he was referring to was John chapter, it's John 2. He's referring to the temple of his own body. He did not say, I will destroy the temple and raise it up in three days. He didn't say that. But that's what they said he said. So they twist the truth and make it sound like this is what he actually did indeed say. Now why do they do this? They have closed minds to the truth. They don't want to believe the truth. Really, what they have a desire to live the way they want to live. That's really what it comes down to. Whatever's in the heart and minds of these scribes, these Pharisees, these elders, they wanted to live the way that they wanted to live. They didn't like it when Jesus came along and said, Ye whitewashed sepulchers, you're covered over like as if you're pure and holy, and you're like dead men's bones. They didn't like it when he said things like that. Told them the truth about themselves. Said, you believe in God, but you don't believe in me. I'm the Son of God. If you believe in God, believe also in me. They didn't want to do that. So they wanted to live life the way that, isn't that really what it comes down to with all of men everywhere? They don't want to hear the gospel because the gospel is going to tell them how sinful they are and they don't want to change. They want to live the way they want to live. They want their positions, their security, their wealth, all that they have that is personally theirs. And so they hate the truth because the truth is going to take all that away from them. Especially if they have obtained that through a false means. So these religionists did not understand what was happening with Christ and who Christ was. So they twisted what they heard and distorted the word of Christ abusing the word of God and using it to condemn him. Now let's look at Christ. The character of Christ in all of this that is going on. Verse number 60 says, And the high priest stood up in the midst, and he asked Jesus, saying, Answerest thou nothing? We read about this in Isaiah 53. He, as a lamb before his shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He's not going to say anything. We're bringing all these false accusations. They knew they were false. We're bringing all these false accusations and he's not saying a word. So the high priest says, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? Is it the truth or not? Now in your courtroom, you have the prosecutor. That's what the, that's what the, the position of the chief, chief priest describes in the elders. They're prosecuting Christ. And you have the defendant. Okay, usually has a lawyer and he will bring his own witnesses to counter the witnesses of the prosecution. Jesus didn't have any of those. I would venture to say that that part of the proceeding was also illegal, that there was no one called upon to defend the Lord Jesus in this. Not that he needed any defense. But uh, it probably infuriated these folks that he didn't say a word. The high priest there said, "Uh, don't you have anything to say? And then he held his peace, verse 61. Still didn't say anything. It's hard to hold your peace. When somebody falsely accuses you, it is hard to hold your peace. You want to lash out and and speak the truth and defend yourself. But he held his peace again. He answered nothing, verse number 61. And again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, now he asked him a pointed question, a theological question. Art thou the Christ? The New Testament word Christ is the Messiah the Son of the Blessed, 
the word blessed, of course, is a reference to God. That's the way they referred to God, the blessed God. And Jesus said, I am. That's kind of a unique statement to the Gospel of John, but here Mark is recording it in the Gospel of Mark. It would be the Greek word, ego eime. I, I am. It's a takeoff from the word Jehovah. That's what it means. So basically he's saying, I am God. I am. He's affirming the, the accusation, I am the Christ, the Son of God. And he goes on. Now I don't know whether the scribes, Pharisees, elders perceived all of this, but I want to spend a little bit of time. We're out of time here tonight, so I have to do it quickly. Verse 62, there's theology. I am. And ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of God in power and coming in the clouds of heaven. There's three things that are alluded to in that statement. I am. He's going to sit at the right hand of God the Father. So he's going to be crucified. That means he's going to be resurrected. All right, so the resurrection is there. There's exaltation because he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And there's the second coming, and I will come again. All right, so you have three doctrines that Jesus, well, four, because you have the deity of Christ. I am. Ah, that's the first one. I'm the Son of God. I'm Christ, the Son of God. Then there's the doctrine of the resurrection. There's the doctrine of the exaltation of Christ and the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. All that's succinctly packed into Jesus' short little statement. So his doctrine is true. His doctrine is right. That's all I'll say about that. There's references we could go to, you and I could go to. The scribes and Pharisees would not have had that revelation because Peter and Paul and and, uh, the other gospel writers hadn't written their gospels to explain all of that. But there is some wonderful truths that are in, I'm sure, Jesus thinking as he's declaring that in verse number 61, I am, and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. But Jesus is calm there, and he is emotionally calm, not speaking a word, being patient, enduring all of this, and uh, having self-control. Boy, we need that, don't we? And uh, he is uh, strong theologically. Let me suggest this. I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but if you and I are persecuted and these kinds of things will happen to us, bringing false accusations, you and I better know our theology right now. Because in the time of trial, in the time of trial, you're not going to be able to go and pull out your theology notes. You may not even have access to a Bible. And you better know your theology now and stick with it and stand with it. Christ preached it through his ministry. He's standing with it now. What happens to us is when we get under the pressure of persecution, the threat of death, Sahid Abedini is being told today to deny Christ and to become a Muslim. By the grace of God, he's standing. But we have a tendency to give in to that and to crush and not believe the theology that we believe. You better get a hold of that theology now before the persecution arises. Christ had that. And then we come back to the frenzied mob again. Verse number 63 with the high priest and so forth, who is trying to stir up the people. He doesn't want to do all this by himself. So he's trying to gather an assembly together to put the blame elsewhere. Then the high priest rent his clothes. And once Jesus made this declaration, 
And he saith, What need we any further witnesses? He probably asked Jesus this question in verse number 61, Art thou the Christ? To see how he would respond to that, if he would respond and say, Yes, I am. Oh, that's enough witness. He declared he was the Messiah. Was it a lie? No, it was the truth. But the priests and all that were following him said, That's a lie. Now we have him blaspheming. And so that's enough to put him to death. And you have heard the blasphemy, he says in verse number 64. What think ye? Let's condemn him to death. And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. So here we see the true character of the high priest. He's got some enmity, some bitter hatred for Christ. I think that's really behind some of what's going on today with the persecution against Christians. What do we do in the face of that? Well, I think the example of Christ to be emotionally calm and theologically strong. And may we learn from the example of Christ. This is Dr. Lee Hennice, and we want to thank you for listening to the Hedgemaker broadcast today. Most of our broadcasts are portions of a sermon that I have preached at church. Hedgemaker Baptist Ministries is a preaching, teaching, and writing ministry for myself. You can visit us on the web at hedgemaker.org. And let's be encouraged to stand in the gap and make up the hedge until Jesus comes again. Music